Welcome, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Could not be more excited to be joined by one of my favorite players of all time, one of many tennis fans' favorite players of all time, not to mention the fact that this is on this man's 55th birthday. He is the great Mats Vilander. Mats, let's start out by just saying, man, happy birthday. Andy, thank you very much. Yes, it was a very happy one. Most of them are, so yeah, it was a good 55th. 63 holes of golf for you, I understand. How'd you shoot to par today? Inquiring minds want to know. Yes, a couple of rounds in the 70s, um, 75, 79, uh, and one. 89, so I'm very inconsistent. I'm, I'm about a sort of a between an 8 and a 12 handicap, but uh, yeah, some of it was, was good, but I'm really not about scoring on the golf course. It's the, the being outside and sometimes hitting the ball in the middle of the club face, being with a really good friend of mine, that's really what it's about. You're out there in Sun Valley, Idaho, so you're in God's country, so that's good enough for you, I suppose. Yes, it was very beautiful. We had a couple of uh, young deers uh, run through the one fairway about 8.30 this morning. Um, had an owl hit <laughs> one of the trees in the evening round. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's paradise out here. You got real close to nature today. Mats, let's look back in time a little bit. And at age 17, can a guy really grasp what you did to win the French Open, you know, 38 years later at age 55, you're a seasoned professional. You have seen it all in the sport of tennis. Looking back on that accomplishment, where does that rate? How do you sort of put that thing into historical perspective, what you did at age 17, winning the French Open in 1982? Yeah, so I think, first of all, um, I was a couple of months shy of my 18th birthday. 1982 was the first year that the great Bjorn Borg uh, did not play the French Open. He won six uh, French Open, six out of eight tries, I believe. Incredible. And uh, his last one was in 1981, so he didn't play in 1982. So all these guys, Ivan Lendl, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, they'd never won the French Open. And uh, I, I personally, when I see all of them, I always tell them that I think you guys choked because <laughs> I didn't know how to do much on a tennis court when I was 17 except not miss I never got tired, uh, and what has surprised me la um, later on is that I really didn't get physically or mentally tired in any of those matches, which maybe I'm too young and too, in a way, stupid to get nervous and realize the, the enormity of the occasion. But yeah, I, I've scratched my head many times when I think about it. Matt, as we speak, the U.S. Open is getting underway, and six years after that French Open victory, you were no longer young and naive, and you knew exactly what was at stake when you would play Yvonne Lendl in the finals of the U.S. Open in 1988. And you can't use naivety as a reason for having won that match. You just ground him down. Where did you and Bjorn Borg part ways in terms of what allowed you to do something that Bjorn Borg was never able to do, which was win a U.S. Open championship? I think the difference was that, uh, first of all, Bjorn, uh, in relative terms, obviously, was a little more powerful than I was. First of all, I have to say so that everybody understands that I will never, ever uh, want to be compared to Bjorn Borg. He was a great player, one of the greatest players of all time. Uh, he won 11 uh, Grand Slam singles titles, five Wimbledons in a row. He really only played Australian Open once, lost three or four U.S. Open finals. I mean, Bjorn should have really won somewhere up close to 20 Grand Slams if he would have continued and if he would have played a full schedule. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, 
Uh, I was overpowered by a lot of these guys in the 80s. Ivan Lendl overpowered me. Uh, a few years later, Boris Becker did. Um, and I think Bjorn was more powerful than most of the guys, so he didn't have to add a lot of variety to his game, whereas I had lost to Ivan a bunch of times in a row. I started out beating him for the first three or four times, and then he beat me for three or four times, and then we got to... 88 U.S. Open final, he beat me in 87. I got overpowered in the U.S. Open final. He beat me in 87 in the French Open final. I got overpowered. So I thought, well, you know what? This match is not going to look the same as the last few. Uh, by 88, I knew how to slice a backhand. Um, I served and volleyed a little bit. I played a lot of doubles. And um, I was trying to figure out how to keep the ball out of the strike zone on his forehand side. And a, and a low slice backhand sort of down the line with a little side spin, seemed to do the job. And uh, I think it shocked him more than, uh, shocked him more than, I think, me, that, oh, this is working. And I, I think he didn't really know what to do or, or how to get out of it. I mean, he was a better player than me, too, I have to say. But that day, somebody told me that I hit more than 1,200 sliced backhands over the four hours and 53 minutes. But I don't know who has time to count them. Well, I can tell you that in in my mind is emblazoned the vision of you hitting slice backhands in that match just all day long. And to me, if I were if somebody said to me, "Hey, what was the difference between Borg and Vlander as far as what they did at the U.S. Open?" I I would have to say that the slice backhand gave you that extra edge that you needed. And clearly, if you hit that many that day, uh, I must be remembering that properly. Yes, no, no, no. I I agree with you. I mean, uh, yes, I. I feel like I had a really good slice backhand, uh, and I might even go out on the limb and say that I most probably had the, the world's best slice backhand for somebody who had a two-handed right. topspin backhand, uh, because that's not that easy to do. So I, I figured that out. Uh, you know, I, I developed my slice as a, as a defensive weapon first, and then I tried to use it a little bit aggressively. I didn't hit it to approach the net that much, but to stay in rallies to keep the ball low. But also, I have to say, with improving something like a slice backhand, my topspin two-handed backhand slowly was dying as well. So you you get some, but you lose some at the same time. The price you pay for improving a certain stroke is usually uh, uh, that you do worse in, in what used to be your favorite shot. My guest today on KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden, the far too humble birthday boy. Mats Vlander, Mats, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the game today. And I'm going to hit you with a hypothetical here. The phone rings, and on the other end of the phone, you hear this thick Australian accent, and this guy says, Mats, I really want to get this thing right. I feel like I can be number one in the world. I've been wasting a lot of talent and wasting a lot of time on tour. As far as a lot of people are concerned, I'm starting to finally agree with him. And Nick Kyrgios says to you, I think I can be one in the world, and I want to defer to a guy whose greatest weapon on the court was what he had between the years. That's clearly not what's going on with me right now. Can you help me become the number one player in the world? How would you answer that? No, I would say no, I can't. Uh, um, I think that Nick Kyrgios has an unbelievable talent uh, when it comes to understanding the game of tennis uh, in terms of uh, pretty good technique and all the shots, obviously really good hands, good reactions. But I think the big difference, people always talk about mentally being strong. I think the big difference is that uh, you have to be mentally strong when you practice. Uh, You have to play three 
four hours a day on most days, and and you have some somehow you have to find uh, a way to keep practice interesting. You have to find a way to want to develop your game. Obviously, we all want to improve, but you also want to develop your game. And I think I think that's where I was really good. I liked practicing. I didn't love it, but I was good at putting my head down and going through uh, certain drills and certain things I knew I needed to do. And I think once I'm on the court, I mean, I, I choked. I got nervous. I got very nervous early in matches. Rafa Nadal gets very nervous early in matches. So I think for Nick Curios, I mean, he's a genius. When he's playing and he tries hard, he's basically a genius. Um, I think that he, he reminds me very much of, of John McEnroe. I mean, John McEnroe got angry, and he played better. But John McEnroe also played a lot of doubles. Instead of practicing, he played doubles. So competition is what he liked. And I, and I feel like Nick Kyrgios, uh, it's definitely not too late. But somebody like him, I mean, he likes playing tennis. That's for sure. Uh, he might not love practicing. He might not love trying at 100% all the time. But you just put yourself in the match situation. Play more doubles. And then, you know, Perfection doesn't exist, and, and a talent uh, is so different. W- what is a talented player? Roger Federer is the epitome. I mean, he's got great hands. He works hard. He thinks great, never gets tired. He moves well. I mean, he doesn't sweat. He's got two sets of twins. Swiss, he is perfect. Um, there are very, very few people that have talents everywhere. And Nick Schurz has it in certain areas, but there's a lot of talents that he doesn't possess. That will uh, that will most probably stop him from reaching his potential. As far as McEnroe goes, you saw him as up close and personal as anybody. Wouldn't it be fair to say, in comparing him to Kyrgios, that McEnroe had had such a disdain for losing yes. that that's what made him such a great champion in many ways? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm not comparing the behavior at right. all. I more I compare the talent that okay. that. Uh, McEnroe has in his hands yep. and the talent that he has in understanding uh, the tennis tactically uh, and cutting angles off and, and when to hit drop shots and when to hit what shot. I think Nick Kyrgios has that talent. Uh, but and, and I, You know, I like when Nick Kyrgios and I like any player that goes out there and, and shows that they care and I don't care if you throw a chair onto the court at the Italian Open or, I mean, obviously what happened at the, uh, in Cincinnati and, and the bad language and all that, that's bad. I don't like that. I agree. But at the same time, uh, at least he shows that he cared in that match and he lost it. But John McEnroe used to lose it all the time as well. But somehow he played better when he lost. And I think we're seeing a little bit more from Nick Curious uh, in terms of I hate losing, most probably as much as most other players do. It's just that Nick Curious that comes on and doesn't try uh and it's obvious that he doesn't care that nick curious i would like to see less of and to be honest we are seeing less of that nick curious Matt, you mentioned roger you mentioned rafa it's hard to have conversations about men's tennis without bringing up those two and of course novak i asked roger at indian wells this year if he was concerned about a potential void in the popularity of our sport when he and Nadal and Djokovic inevitably ride off into the sunset. We have to assume that within the next five years or so, those three are going to be gone. And if you look at the seeds in the U.S. Open in 2019, it goes Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, and then it's Dominic Team, and then I believe Medvedev is five. So you're talking about two guys at four and five 
between them have two major final appearances, which I guess would be team in two straight French Open finals. Outside of that, maybe Marin Cilic has won a major, and obviously Stan has won three. Are you fearful that when these three guys are gone, that, that tennis is going to suffer greatly? I was for a while, I have to say. But I have to say, with, uh, with some of the young guys that are sort of 19 to 22 years old, we are some really interesting prospects. I mean, Stefanos Tsitsipas uh, is, is a great player to watch. He's a great player tactically. He has uh, lots of room for improvement, but he, but he carries himself like a great champion and somebody that you can go and watch and, and you know he's going to give you what you came for, uh, which is 100% effort. And he's diving uh, and he's serving and volleying. He's coming to the net. So he has, he has pretty much the whole game. I like some of the other young, younger guys. Denis Shapovalov is very exciting when he plays uh, well, and we doesn't uh, uh, go too crazy in terms of trying to trying to hit the perfect shot every time. So I think that there's some really uh, good Nick Curios we mentioned. Um, I think that there's some really very interesting young players coming up. Um, so yes, obviously it's going to be a void in a certain way. But when Bjorn Borg quit, uh, which would be a similar thing, Bjorn Borg quit in 1981, and we thought there's going to be this huge void, and and I filled maybe. One of his shoes by being a Swede with long hair, two-handed backhand. Then we had a certain German, Boris Becker, who came up literally three years after, uh, sorry, four years after Borg won his last French Open. And Boris Becker took the world with storm. I mean, he, he was somebody that, oh my goodness, where does this guy come from? He became a massive star. So I don't think that, uh, yes, it seems like we, we should... Uh, we should miss them uh, very much. But I have to say, watching Roger Federer trying to, trying to solve the problem that is winning another slam, uh, beating Nadal and Djokovic at their best, it's pretty interesting to see him trying to figure out how, how he's playing better in the Wimbledon final, but somehow he still loses three tiebreakers. He won more points than Djokovic. Uh, two match points, lost four points in a row. So I think we then saw Federer... Uh, I wouldn't say choking, but, I mean, he certainly had his chances. And did he make some of the decisions uh, that were the wrong ones? Most probably because he didn't succeed winning. Suddenly we find that interesting. So I think we will find uh, rivalries that are interesting. No, we won't have them win ten majors each and then play these great finals that Nadal and Federer did and now Djokovic. But I don't think tennis... I don't think we need the massive stars. I think we can go back to having six, seven, eight players that could win a major. Anyone could win it. Nothing will find that as interesting. For someone that does what I do, Matt, which is as a club pro and a guy that's kind of in the trenches in the tennis business, I, I fear that void as well. Then I have the opportunity to participate in an event uh, that you and Cameron Lickle work together and headline, and I suddenly find some some solace there in seeing you still delivering the goods as you do. How do you see your role in the sport sort of evolving as you go forward? What are some of the things that you have your sights set on for the future of tennis for Mats Vilander? You know, I'm just I'm trying to trying to give back to to tennis because tennis has given me basically everything that I have. I met my wife at the U.S. Open in 1985. Uh, we have four beautiful kids; they're all in their 20s now. Um, I've got to move to to Haley, Idaho, Sun Valley, Idaho, because of tennis. Uh, everything that I have pretty much is because of tennis. So I'm trying to give back to this great game because you can never give back enough, and I don't care what your name is. 
Um, and I find that I am very fortunate. I got a passion for the sport. I, I used to have a passion, I thought, for winning or ranking or whatever. And I realized later in life that m my passion is much deeper than that. I just I love hitting balls. I love the feeling of hitting balls. I love the the uh, knowing that I might have helped somebody with their backhand or forehand. So helping amateurs, teaching them a little bit. And uh, I think of myself as just an... I mean, I hope I'm an inspiration to people that play tennis at any level. Um, I work for Eurosport and do a lot of commentating and do a lot of TV at all the four majors. I've been doing that for 15 years. So I'm just not trying to spread my enthusiasm, but hoping that if I love what I do, which I do, uh, that uh, that shows up and, and people might look at tennis slightly different. Well, I can tell you from having been uh, fortunate enough to be involved in a couple of the events that you have done that you just bring so much excitement to whatever venue you come to. And I do hope that you will continue to spread that love because it is very infectious. And I, I appreciate what you continue to do for our sport. Uh, you're incredibly honest and very genuine. And, God, you still hit a hell of a ball, Matt. i got to tell you. Thank you, Andy. If I could tell you this much, that I also know that I, I have heard, and I know this is true, that I was one of the more boring players uh, when I came no up way. in 17, no way. Yeah, I know that. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. There's a lot of long matches. Suddenly we had people talk about rule changes that maybe the ball should only be allowed to be hit 20 times each or something. So I know that there was some of that. So hopefully uh, I am spreading some joy now later in life. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's my life. It's my passion. And, and I enjoy every every part of tennis and uh, I will keep uh, showing up at the majors and and uh, commentating and do any kind of media that I can get my hands on until I am no longer welcome. He is royalty in our sport and he is a birthday boy today at age 55, the great Mats Vilander and Mats, thank you so much for joining me today on kickserveradio.com Our listeners I know have enjoyed every minute of it. Andy, it was a pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me on. To come.